Truth Espresso, episode 151. Hi, this is Daniel Minnick, the host of the Truth Espresso podcast here on the Christian podcast community, hosted by Striving for Eternity. Christmas is just around the corner, and you still haven't figured out what to get that family member who has everything. Why not try my new book, When the Watchtower Knocks, discussing an encounter with Jehovah's Witnesses? No, it's not some boring textbook. It's about an actual conversation with those dudes at the door. Learn what they believe by what they actually said. My brother John and I walk you through the dialogue and give comments along the way. The Trinity? Armageddon? Michael the Archangel? The Torture Stake? It's all in there. When the Watchtower Knocks is available in paperback for $8.95 and Kindle for $2.99. You might want to put it on your wish list too. Treat yourself and your loved one to a read that is both fun and informative. Get When the Watchtower Knocks by going to truthspresso.com slash jw. That's truthspresso.com slash jw and finish that Christmas shopping list today. Hey, this is Daniel Minnick coming at you with another episode of Truth Espresso Express. And if you don't know what Truth Espresso Express is, perhaps it's because you're a new listener to Truth Espresso and because it's been a several weeks since I've done one of these episodes. A Truth Espresso Express is when I record an episode from, you know, preparing a few notes to get myself ready to be able to record while I'm driving to or from work. Most of the time it's when I'm driving to work because it's easier to have notes fresh in my mind um, and research stuff done the night before. And so, um, this episode of Truth Espresso Express, we're go- I'm going to talk about a high-profile case that happened recently. And this is the case of one Jussie Smollett. Now, I'm sure you've heard of this, but perhaps you have, haven't followed the entire saga from the beginning or paid very close attention to it. You perhaps know that a few weeks ago, the verdict was reached in his trial, finding him guilty of five of six charges of federal disorderly conduct. felony disorderly conduct for staging a hoax, a fake hate crime against himself. And maybe you read articles about that trial, but I want to go back through the whole saga, what led up to the trial, and see if we could glean some lessons from it. And it's going to take longer than one drive to work, so I'm probably going to record uh, the dr- on this drive to work uh, another one. Combine the two together and make one uh, longer episode. So, who is Jesse Smollett? Well, he is uh, half black, uh, half Jewish, and a gay guy. And so, given who he is there as far as his ethnicity and as far as his life choices in this uh, particular culture now, uh, he ticks several intersectionality boxes. And so, it appears, based on the verdict in the trial, that um, this Jussie wanted to uh, take advantage of that. And this culture today, uh, 
very much values victimhood and now it is important that justice be done when justice must be served and that there are to be recognized people who are victims of crimes and that they should be protected now uh, I know Chris uh, Hanholtz recently wrote an article about not platforming victims and I agree with that we don't take people who will go through an ordeal and put them on a platform make them authorities to speak and stuff they need healing they need counseling they need um, protection they don't need to become an authority and a voice because you know that can lead to uh, disaster and so yeah I applaud Chris Hanholtz for writing uh, that article and you can read it at slave to the king.com now back to Jussie Smollett so he by who he is he ticks several intersectionality boxes which naturally lends himself to being able to be a voice and speak about certain things about victimhood and so on and Jussie Smollett didn't grow up in the ghetto he was a child actor since uh, he was eight years old so really Smollett knew pretty much nothing but celebrity culture his entire life and he's most known now for his more recent role as Jamal Lyon on the sitcom Empire now I had never watched Empire never really heard of Empire and perhaps fleeting in when I'm was trying to watch something uh, streaming maybe I recall like some kind of ad or you know coming up or to tell you what's to expect next on the uh, next episode of Empire and you know I just think to myself okay another one of those sitcoms that I really don't don't understand what draws people in uh, you know i <laughs> i uh, since like family matters and you know um stuff like that i haven't really been uh involved in sitcoms you know they just don't interest me it seems like there's just often way too much smart way too much politics trying to glamorize life that's not very productive or faithful to you know the family and stuff like that but nevertheless oh yeah he was a child actor on the movie the mighty ducks but yeah, so I'd never heard of Jussie Smollett the name. I'd never heard, really heard of Empire, knew anything about it, other than perhaps an ad at one time. But on January 22nd, 2019, the ordeal, the saga starts where he received a letter um, in the Chicago office of the Chicago studio where he would do some filming and this uh, letter had this kind of a childish like <laughs> drawing of a stick figure hanging from a tree and having a, a gun pointed at his head and it, it had some letters cut out like from a magazine 
put together to spell a message and it basically had a threatening message against him kind of calling him names trying to say that his life was in danger and it and it, the return address had in all caps MAGA you know <laughs> so, so you know all you people who voted for Trump you know you are all likely someone who could have sent this letter threatening him because of who he is you know yeah uh-huh um you know you're all like this okay you know that's what the letter seemed like somehow someone wanted to make known that he was a big supporter of trump and that he was also a you know of such a caliber of racist that he would threaten him because of that he's black and you know, gay. Uh, so then a few days later, about a week later, January 29th, I believe it was. So Jussie then reported an incident to Chicago police that he was the victim of a hate crime. So basically, most likely the uh, ones who, the one or ones who sent this hate crime, this <laughs> hate-filled letter uh, to him, threatening him, made good on their threat and so this incident happened during really the coldest day of the year during a polar vortex uh, at 2 a.m. this early Chicago morning uh, January 29th and Jesse Smollett uh, said that he was hungry and he was going to he went to the store to get some eggs but the store was closed and so he went to a subway because subways open 24 hours a day and he went to get a, a tuna sandwich and so he ha- he got the sandwich and then some voice yelled out you know with racial and homophobic slurs, you know, hey, Empire, you know, aren't you that guy from Empire? And then he went to, you know, hear what the matter was, and he found himself at an intersection by an alley there with being attacked, and he couldn't really get good looks at the guy. Uh, what he claimed was first one guy attacking him and you know as he's being attacked then he looks down and he sees that there's some rope around his neck and you know the guy is saying you know this is MAGA country and you know and they're wearing red hats and they also uh, pour some chemical substance on him he feels that and you know it smells like bleach so you know they're they're trying to you know they're really hating the color of his skin they're pouring bleach to bleach his skin lighter and they're gonna you know hang him you know getting ready to hang him beat him up but he according to how what he told the police he managed to fight his way out and as he is fighting he uh, saw them run away and noticed that there were two of them there so what's interesting about this incident because as police came uh, after this he called the police well he delayed a little bit which was something the police were wondering about and as he was interviewed later um, you know he tried to explain police entered his hotel and they noticed him standing just standing there kind of nonchalantly with this really thin kind of rope around his neck and you know he 
kept it on. <laughs> he didn't take it off. He kept it on. And uh, he, uh, he, want, he explained later that he kept it on because he wanted the police to see clearly what had just happened. So he took the police out to the area to show them and explain to them what happened. And he also noticed and pointed to the camera and saying, the, the camera, that captured it. You know, how convenient. <laughs> the camera captured the incident, so check the footage. But the police told him um, the camera's pointing north, so it's not facing the direction that would have captured what just went on. <laughs> and so, yeah, that kind of made Smollett upset because, you know, putting this incident on film for the world to see, you know, he's cheated out of that. Uh, and then the police asked for his cell phone and he was not willing to give that up. They just wanted his cell phone to check out, you know, some evidence and for a few hours and he didn't want to give away his cell phone because he had contact information of you know actors and stuff and he said that they that was private information he didn't want the police to know or and abuse but it was kind of uh, an issue that uh, he wouldn't give that information but he did quickly you know whip up a, a redacted uh, spreadsheet of the information and sent that to them so I mean they they would tell the the press that he was being was cooperating with them but except for the fact that he wouldn't give up his cell phone was a concern Smollett went to the hospital that night for the minor injuries that he did sustain and he was let go the next morning but one of the things that the police you know as they're investigating they said that they're considering this a uh, a hate crime a possible hate crime and that uh, legally speaking Smollett was a victim until they would uh, investigate and figure out just what happened but you know one of the things that was kind of concerning to them was that they noticed as he gave his story you know in the apartment he said that he went to get a sub sandwich that's when he was attacked but he had the sub sandwich with him at his apartment and the sub sandwich didn't get beat up like he did <laughs> or you know at least minorly the sub sandwich was fully intact and so you know who when they're the victim of a hate crime by two large you know aggressive people would hold on to their sandwich and not only would they hold on to it but you know even if holding on to it you know wouldn't that make you like squeeze it as you're trying to fight you know like let's say he didn't drop it reflexively as you'd think most people would do they would just reflexively drop the sandwich but he held on to it and he didn't squeeze it it didn't get damaged and so you'd think that subway would <laughs> it was this would make a cool commercial for subway you know like you know make a commercial about this is the sandwich that helps you endure <laughs> 
a hate crime at 2 a.m. Or perhaps Subway would start selling a sandwich, you know, called the Jussie or the the Smollett, and that it would be made, you know, extra tough with, like, extra hard bread so it would survive (laughs) an attack or, you know, maybe be wrapped in in iron or something, you know. Um, You know, you could really make a cool commercial about this, but nevertheless, the police did their job. They treated him and they said they treated him rightfully as a victim until they figured out just what happened. And, you know, as this was going on, the media and the political figures, after uh, Jussie reported the incident, they were quick to um, treat him just as he claimed and act like this was a problem that was very endemic in America. Like, this type of racism (laughs) is just normal and we gotta fight it. Like, it's everywhere. You know, then, before then, uh, Senator um, and presidential candidate Kamala Harris tweeted that it was a modern-day lynching and that we had to keep fighting this. Cory Booker also a presidential candidate and also a a Democratic senator and contender, called it a lynching, and he was trying to persuade the rest of Congress to, because of this, to push to pass his anti-lynching bill, and of course the bill wanted to include things like things that are said or, you know, just any kind of threat or anything that would be considered hate speech or whatever, you know, that could fall under a legal definition of lynching, and so this was going to be some very sweeping legislation pushed and inspired by the Jussie Smollett incident. Uh, President Trump himself, even when he heard about it, before he knew really everything that went on, he said something to the effect of, you know, it's, it's horrible and it doesn't get worse than this. So, yeah, it wasn't like Trump was, you know, unlike, you know, what Smollett tried to make the uh, attackers to be like, as if this was the way MAGA people would act, Um, you know, the head of the MAGA uh, clan, (laughs) President Trump himself, uh, expressed his sympathies for Smollett based on what he knew there. Now, police followed video footage of of the two attackers into the apartment. There were, you know, there were uh, cameras throughout the area and even some uh, civilian cameras captured footage and police put it together to follow the attackers to an apartment. And so they knew where these two attackers resided, but they followed their airplane schedule, you know, there's, they followed a Uber record, or rather it was Lyft, I think it was, and they found out their plane schedule because they had a flight they caught to go out of the country. So the police waited, uh, according to their schedule, that they would return to Chicago again. And on February 13th, after these uh, two attackers returned to Chicago and at their apartment, police arrested them and they found uh, bleach there and they found other gear there. So police arrested the two attackers on the 13th. And so as this was going on, on February 14th, which you know is Valentine's Day, Smollett was interviewed on Good Morning America with Robin Roberts. And, you know, Smollett got to 
you know, this was uh, billed as Smollett breaks his silence. And it was an impassioned interview as Robin Roberts asked him questions about what went on. And Smollett gave details about how, you know, they called him different things that they had to bleep out there. And he managed to fight them off. And he was a fighter and he wanted to encourage a young people like him to fight not be violent but to fight for the cause and you know, when he was asked about you know how is this going to affect him then he paused for you know had some silence he broke into tears and he explained that you know this thing will change this incident would change him forever he would you know i listened to this yesterday as of this recording so you know he said something to the fact that he will never be the person that this didn't happen to he also said that um you know he hopes the truth will come out you know and but he 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 said that you know he talked to a a female friend who told him sweetheart they're never gonna catch them and (laughs) and he said you know that that really hurt him because you know he wants justice to prevail and you know he seemed like he banked on the idea that these Two attackers will be out law out at large there forever, never being a, <laughs> a caught. But you'd think that you know maybe they would be wanting to do more of this type of thing if they're that hateful, and that you know police would be more competent than that to be able to catch them, you know, as they caught the two suspects um, the previous day, but. That brings me to an end of this part of the episode because I just parked at work and there's a lot more to this, so I will continue on after the break. Would you help with a donation to Striving for Eternity? Let me let you know what your donation helps with. We travel overseas to places like Canada, to the Philippines, elsewhere to go and preach the good news of Jesus Christ, to teach people where they don't have as much opportunity as we have here in America. We go all over the country to be able to preach and teach, to teach people how to interpret God's Word. So when they open God's Word and handle it for themselves, they know how to accurately handle God's Word. That's the heart we have. We want to be about discipling God's children. If you give a donation, regardless of any amount, we would be very grateful. But we'd also like to bless you. So if you give a donation of $2, we are going to give you a free copy of What Do We Believe, a book that I had wrote about the Christian theology. If you give a donation of $5 a month, we will give you... That book that I mentioned, plus What Do They Believe, which is a book I wrote about world religions. If you're willing to give $10 a month, we will give you the two books mentioned, plus On the Origin of Kinds, a book Dr. Anthony Silvestro wrote that deals with evangelism, presuppositional apologetics, and creation science all put together so you see how to use them. If you give a donation of $20 a month, we will give you the three books mentioned plus the book Sharing the Good News with Mormons. 24 different authors giving 24 different ways to evangelize the Mormons, but many of them work for just evangelism period and are great tactics to use. 
we would greatly appreciate a donation of $25 a month. And what we would look to do with that is give it away. If you give us $25, we're going to seek to give away $25 as part of our ministry as the Christian podcast community. And Striving for Eternity wants to help get missionaries to get their mission out. So if you give us $25 a month, we are going to commit to trying to look for missionaries that we can give them podcasting equipment and hosting so that they would be able to get their message of what they're doing on the mission field to their supporting churches rather than sending a a letter that is a mission report that many people don't read, but they'll listen to a podcast. And when the missionary is at that church, man, they're going to say, hey, listen to my podcast. People will subscribe. And then they're going to hear in the missionary's own voice what's going on. Instead of when the missionary comes to town and they show pictures of people you don't know, no, it's different when you've heard the missionary say, I led this person to Christ. I've been discipling this person. This is what's happening with this person. And now you see the picture. Oh, what a joy it is. Now, if you could do more than that, we certainly will not turn it away, and you'll still get the four books. We are in need of your support. We value the money donated to us, and if we have provided value to you, may you consider helping us to help others. It would be greatly appreciated. Just go to strivingforeternity.org slash donate to donate today. Thank you for considering it. Well, hey there. I am back to continue um, the discussion of the Jesse Smollett saga. Um, As I ended last drive, we're talking about the two alleged attackers um, who allegedly attacked, allegedly small, no, (laughs) uh, they allegedly attacked Smollett in a upscale downtown area of Chicago. Um, Allegedly, I mean, they poured bleach on him. They put this uh, kind of makeshift rope around his neck and they uh, said racial and um, homophobic slurs at him. And he managed to fight his way out of the attack and get away and discovered that there were actually two large attackers there. And we mentioned the uh, interview that he did on Good Morning America with Robin Roberts and the questions he was asked and how he you know, broke down in tears at uh, seemingly you know, the right time when he's questioned about uh, how he's going to cope with this. And, and at the time, the police had detained the two suspects. Uh, Smollett had seen the video footage asking if these seemed, possibly seemed to be the attackers. So he saw video footage of the attackers, <laughs> you know, not the footage from the camera that was supposed to be aimed at the incident, but footage of the two attackers going, leaving the scene of the crime, and he was asked, do these look like they could be the attackers? And he kind of affirmed, but wasn't certain, and, (laughs) but yeah. So that's where we left off, and after the interview, where the police had detained, they had arrested the two attackers on February 13th, and Good Morning America aired the interview on Valentine's Day, the next day, February 14th. 
Now, let's get to who the attackers were, because this is where the story gets interesting. And because if I'm expressing any doubts about whether the uh, attack was real or whether it was staged, we get into what the police discovered that fateful morning. And as they researched and investigated, things did not seem to fit how uh, Smollett had explained and described the incident. So as police followed the footage of these two attackers, they suspected that what cameras seemed to reveal were two very tall and strong, dark-skinned brothers. So as Smollett described them, they were not light-skinned, they were dark-skinned. And um, so these turned out to be two Nigerian brothers, the Osundairo brothers, um, that the camera footage captured and they obtained uh, also the police obtained the airplane schedule and via looking up the lift <laughs> ride that they used the was it lift or uber i can't remember but whatever the case you know the records were there to trace the travel that these uh, nigerian osandiro brothers were doing and the police obtained airplane schedule they uh, noticed that the osandiro brothers soon after this incident they were scheduled to go to the chicago O'Hare airport and fly out to nigeria now the police had hoped that the brothers would follow their schedule and go back to uh, Chicago and they they did um, you know because they didn't have any idea that the police were ready for them so on February 13th as I mentioned the police arrested the two Nigerian Osandiro brothers and notice the container of bleach in their apartment. Now, you know, it's possible that someone can have bleach for washing clothes, but hey, you know, they followed the footage, they followed where uh, this apartment was, and yeah, there, sure enough, there was a container of bleach that would match, uh, you know, what was poured on Smollett. And these um, two, these Osandiro brothers were bodybuilders and they turned out to be friends of Jussie Smollett or at least somewhat acquaintances friends um, according to what Jussie would describe later on <laughs> at least according to Jussie there was some kind of relationship between him and one of the brothers but so they knew each other and these brothers were or at least one of them, possibly, if I remember, there were extras on the show Empire. So, yeah, they knew each other. <laughs> so why would these Osandira brothers, who were friends of Smollett, and they knew each other, why would they <laughs> do this to him? Why would they, friends of Jussie Smollett, who, as he described in his interview, he is not friends of 
uh, Trump or MAGA people that they would put on red hats. You know, uh, Jussie denied that he said in his uh, to the police that they were wearing MAGA hats. So that came out, but the footage showed they were wearing red hats, and so you know the story is that they're wearing MAGA hats because he Jussie Smollett said that they said this is MAGA country. You know, in in Chicago, it's it's that's kind of humorous. So. These two Nigerian bodybuilder brothers, friends of Smollett, the Osundairo brothers, um, as they were arrested and questioned, they tried to hold out a little bit, but eventually at the 47th hour, I believe, they have the police have 48 hours to detain them. Uh, and so I think the Osundairo brothers felt the pressure and then they confessed to what happened. And what happened was they confessed that Jussie Smollett had paid them $3,500 to stage a fake hate crime. And so, you know, they bought the gear for it and they, you know, they spilled the beans there. So uh, within two days, uh, so the, the police recognized that they they themselves didn't really commit a crime. They confessed to it. They were pressured into it and they were really sorry about it. They, they didn't want to be involved in it anymore and covering it up. And so the police uh, released them without charging them of a crime. So as the police found out with piecing things together, the brothers got this thin rope from a hardware store that they turned into a makeshift noose. They were at a clothing store. The footage at the clothing store showed the brothers shopping for uh, other visual gear, the gloves, the ski masks, and the red hats to use as MAGA hats. So uh, Smollett had paid the Osundairo brothers a total of $3,500 to split among them to help stage this hate crime against them. And what's interesting about this is that he wrote them a check. Now, you would think if he were smart enough to cover his tracks here, he wouldn't have written them a check. He would have given them some cash, you know, unmarked bills, uh, so that you couldn't trace the payment here. But yeah, he paid them a check, and that check was going to turn out to haunt them. Now, you know, as he tried to argue, this check was to uh, pay for nutritional program and exercise routine because he was trying to lose weight and trying to get fit for a music video. And so these brothers were doing that. But, you know, that's his word <laughs> against their word. And so the brothers admitted and admitted to this and the surveillance showed that they scouted, you know, with Smollett, they're in the car there, they scouted out the area, they circled it several times um, where they would stage this incident. So, yeah, that, that was another piece of evidence showing that this wasn't some actual hate crime because what are the odds that Smollett, according to his testimony, that he, at two in the morning on the most frigid day of uh, of the year in Chicago, a polar vortex, that 
he was hungry and yeah he was at this upscale hotel that he somehow couldn't get food like you know he couldn't go to a vending machine i'm sure they serve something there but he just had to go outside in the freezing cold try to go to uh, i think it was a walgreens to get eggs you know because eggs are good for your workout health and and uh, he found out it was closed so he went to a subway and because they're open 24 hours and hey if you're hungry you get subway right uh, doesn't matter you know that shows just how hungry he really was but but yeah he could have gotten something at a vending machine he could have <laughs> i'm sure there was something open there at the hotel there they could have served him but yeah and then these two brothers just happened to be waiting out there in the cold for someone to jump and it just so they were following Jussie Smollett somehow around and waiting to jump him these two Nigerian brothers who were friends of his who were you know darker skinned than he was remember he's half black half Jewish and so he's lighter than they are they're they're definitely darker skinned and so yeah the police pretty soon uh, presented they ha- held a press conference they presented the the piece the evidence that they had um, chief uh, the superintendent there Eddie Johnson s- expressed how that he was upset that you know a an African American would use the symbol of a noose for his own advantage to press victimhood because he didn't like his uh, current pay at for his role on M and he wanted to become a much greater hero, a star, and that that would help him get a higher pay for his role at Empire. But yet, with all this, the police weren't really out for blood. They basically wanted Smollett to apologize for the hoax when asked, what would justice look like if this is all true? And they basically said they want an apology from him, and they would like him to pay for the time and effort that they spent searching things out. So yeah, they definitely were not out for blood. They just wanted you know, him to apologize and and pay them for the service that they did so the police were they didn't have you know a a grudge against him as if uh, superintendent eddie johnson himself was a black guy and so yeah um he wasn't you know uh, racist or homophobic here he just he you know he was upset that they had to spend all this time investigating a a fake hate crime here and yeah uh, he uh, Jesse Smollett shouldn't be able to just get away with this he he said that he dragged Chicago through the mud for his own gain in his own career there but you know so the media would interview Eddie Johnson there and you know they would ask them the police why are the police trying to make the case in the court of public opinion why are they trying to explain what happened before a trial and he did say you know Jussie will get his time in court he will get his day in court but they also wanted the public to know because it was obvious that what was happening but the media were, were trying to blast the police for basically trying to make the court 
you know, make their case without it being in court. But, you know, I think the media wanted to milk this narrative for all it's worth, you know, and help get, if they could get the people <laughs> on the side and get the pressure of the people, then maybe they could, you know, sway a jury whenever this would go to court, you know, spread fear and milk the narrative. But I know the police want to make sure that the truth was out there in the court of public opinion to some degree, you know, not showing everything, but to some degree before this thing really got out of hand. So ultimately here with the charges against Smollett, the bail was set at $100,000, but Smollett was released on a $10,000 bond the next day. And now let's go to March 8th of 2019. There were 16 counts of felony charges uh, related to the staged incident. And Cook County State's attorney, uh, who would be supposed to be the lead, you know, attorney handling this, was someone by the name of Kim Fox. <laughs> but, you know, she recused herself from the case because she said there is a potential conflict of interest because she was uh, she was somewhat friends with Smollett. But she recused herself, but she didn't do it the right way. She just passed it along to someone else on staff, which wasn't the legal way to handle that. So there was there were problems with that. And then a few weeks later after this, a seemingly shady deal resulted in all the charges, all 16 of the charges being dropped in exchange for a merely 16 hours of so-called community service. And that amounted to merely working with Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Push Coalition. So yeah, what kind of community service is this? He just gets to do something he would advocate for, basically, you know, helping out, stuffing envelopes, and just yeah. <laughs> Didn't sound like much work there, much community service. It just seemed more like something that was up his alley there. So just more political advocacy. Yeah, that's punishment for filing a false police report. And it seemed that there were interests there to allow Smollett to get away with what he had done without in any way scrutinizing the fact that what he had did was a, a file a false police report and to, to determine legally whether what he did, he was innocent of it or guilty of it. And yeah, there was a lot of people <laughs> People who were upset about this wait this is not how we normally do things like how was he able to get this as a plea bargain and be able to get away scot-free and he, he didn't even have to admit in any way that he was guilty of it and so you know after the charges were dropped um, he was quick to make a statement in the media that was that he was completely innocent as the driven snow and mayor Rahm Emanuel and police superintendent you know I mentioned before Eddie Johnson, neither of these two were happy about it at all. Rahm Emanuel said that it was, um, I believe he said it was like a whitewash of justice and yeah, so then the FBI eventually began to investigate, you know, why the charges were dropped. And they were investigating the the letter that Smollett had sent earlier, or the, the letter that came, and whether Smollett had sent that to himself, which was, of course, highly likely. 
the police then after this whitewash of justice they were mentioning that they were considering sending a bill to Jussie Smollett for the you know just send a bill that he had to pay like if they can't get something they want to send the bill and if he paid that bill that would somewhat maybe be a de facto apology but the bill if I remember, it was over a hundred thousand, probably like a hundred thirty something thousand dollars. Yeah, but Smollett had no intention of doing anything at all that would in any way uh, indicate that he was in guilty of anything at all, which would of course leave plenty of questions unanswered. And he was happy with that, and he seemed to be happy with his alleged attackers, you know, never getting caught, uh, never uh, getting getting away with whatever, you know, he didn't seem just like he was interviewed. He wanted the truth to come out, but all he seemed to care about was that he was not in any way declared guilty and he didn't seem to want a real case of this to go forward. Well, (laughs) that brings us to the end of this because I'm parking at work here. And so that means I'm going to have another part of this driving I'll try to get it driving from work today. I wasn't able to get this part uh, yesterday driving from work. I just wasn't quite ready for it. But stay tuned for the next part after this break. My name is Andy Olson, and I want to tell you about Echozoi Radio. Echozoi Radio is a podcast outreach of Echozoi Ministries. Every month I find a knowledgeable guest to talk about an important and interesting topic that affects the church today. We carefully balance the discussions of positive, God-glorifying doctrines of Orthodox Christianity from a mostly Reformed point of view with exposés of heresy, false teaching, and poor practice that goes on throughout the church today. You can find us at echozoe.com. That's E-C-H-O-Z-O-E dot com. Well, hey there, this is Daniel Minnick, and welcome back to this exciting, if you will, (laughs) or uh, extra special edition of Truth Espresso Express, where this is the third part of covering the Jussie Smollett saga, and this is the third drive comprising the third part. I'm actually driving back home on my way from work on a Friday and going to enjoy a nice Christmas break with the family. Now, where we last left off in the saga, the police were upset, lots of people were upset. We're into the year 2020. Smollett is free of all charges, but the FBI is investigating why the charges were mysteriously dropped in an unusual fashion and Smollett didn't even have to deal with having a verdict of whether he's guilty or innocent. And so the rest of the year was basically legal investigation into this case. And we get toward the end of 2020 and after a warrant at the end of the year to get Google information from Smollett, uh, six new felony charges surfaced in February of 2021. So, although the original 16 uh, felony charges were dropped, six renewed charges were raised again, and in October of 2021, Smollett's attorney tried to dismiss the case, but the judge rejected it. And it's kind of interesting that the defense would do this because doesn't the defense want justice served? 
doesn't, you know, Smollett want to make sure if he claims that he's innocent and they're violent attackers, doesn't he want somehow uh, to prove himself and to have um, the attackers actually that there would be resolution into this case here but you know Smollett seems to be happy to have attackers walk free just so he can cry about it in the media but now we get to the trial so the trial actually began November 29th with jury selection, and the trial lasted until uh, December 8th. And the jury deliberated that day and reached a verdict the next day. Now, so what happened in this trial? Because, you know, this was a very strange case, and with the police information and everything that was revealed up until the point in the court of public opinion, you would think that <laughs> no one would really want to touch this case with a 10-foot pole that is on the defense side, but Smollett had some... Uh, friends in high places that were attorneys who were willing to take this case and it seems as we get look at some of the details of this case um, <laughs> that Smollett seemed to pick attorneys who thought a lot like he did like basically they could win this case by winning it in the court of public opinion and appealing to political things rather than the facts of the case and the evidence presented. So, indeed, the trial itself was just as bizarre, if not even more bizarre in some points, than the incident itself, that uh, the whole incident of the case, the fake hate crime. So, during the trial, police testified and showed a lot of evidence that they presented uh, nearly three years earlier, and I'm sure they presented more evidence. This, this trial wasn't televised, so we didn't get to see it and so some things that the police probably had to have redacted were also presented at the case. That's my estima at estimation that they were able to present some things that they couldn't present publicly. So they did present some of the stuff they presented nearly three years earlier. Uh, video footage, uh, the magical <laughs> uh, subway sandwich that uh, Smollett obsessively protected. And another uh, interesting piece of evidence mentioned before is the check that Smollett personally signed and uh, gave to the Osandiro brothers. So yeah, the defense had to argue that the check was, as Smollett claimed, for something other than staging the attack. But of course, there is much more evidence that it was for the attack because they had the evidence of conversation between Smollett and the Osandiro brothers. You had the uh, video footage and the admission that corresponded with it that they circled the area. And, you know, Smollett tried to claim that it, circling that area had nothing to do with planning out a, a staged attack with the Osandiro brothers. But, yeah, it, it seemed like gaslighting for him to say that. One of the defense's claims was that the Osandiro brothers tried to disguise as pale-faced people so that Smollett's earlier claim that he saw pale skin under the eye holes of the ski mask <laughs> would make enough sense in what the case had to be about here. 
But, you know, <laughs> then the question, of course, remains as to why the Osendaro brothers would do that. And is there evidence that they would do such a thing? And so some ways it seemed that the Osendaro brothers were just as much on trial as Smollett was. Because the defense attorneys would try to claim that the Osendaro brothers were criminal masterminds. So the defense's case seemed to be that the uh, Osendaro brothers were very hungry for money and they knew that Smollett had the bucks. And so <laughs> they wanted to get Smollett to hire them as bodyguards. And Smollett refused to do that. And so <laughs> in <laughs> anger over Smollett's refusal, they planned this fake hate crime that to, of which Smollett was not uh, a willing participant, and so they actually did attack him. What they did was they disguised as virulently racist MAGA-supporting white dudes and pretended to lynch him uh, in the intersection there to scare uh, Smollett then to realizing that he needs protection and so that then either they were doing that to get even with him for not hiring them or they're trying to scare him into later taking them up on their offer and saying okay uh, guys uh, <laughs> I just got lynched or an attempted lynching and so I need you big uh, friends here to be my bodyguards and I'm going to pay you guys through the nose for that service because I really need it. <laughs> so yeah, that's that was basically the defense's position as untenable, as cartoonish as it was without, you know, any evidence. It was just basically an argument of, well, this could work with what has been presented, but there's no evidence, there's no positive evidence of it, it's just a plausible theory. While as the evidence overwhelmingly suggested that Smollett paid them to stage this <laughs> attack with the surveillance, the check, uh, the sub that survived the defense's position didn't in any way explain why the sub sandwich um, <laughs> survived the slings and arrows of a lynching. <laughs> I do have to give the defense props for taking the case and conjuring such an explanation, even if it is a pathological lie. I mean, you think that there would be some kind of <laughs> legal penalty for lawyers being able to just lie through their teeth, <laughs> but I guess it's, you know, it's just a game to see uh, who juries could believe the most and lawyers are exempt from being able to lie in court. <laughs> so the most bizarre incident in this case happened when one of Smollett's attorneys, uh, a black woman uh, by the name of Walker, uh, was cross-examining one of the Osendairo brothers, I believe it was Ola, Ola Binjo Osendairo, and um, she was she asked him about 
some comment that was on record of him saying uh, about someone whom he suspected for being gay it was some kind of insensitive remark about that person and she was trying to make a federal case out of it literally <laughs> and the judge judge lynn said that issue that was irrelevant to the case at hand and walker believed it was very relevant so walker asked for an off record sidebar uh discussion between uh among the attorneys and judge lynn so they took a kind of a break from the cross-examination of osandiro and they had their sidebar discussion and i wish i could have been a fly on the wall to be able to see that because you know that's not available for public viewing but what ensued after that tells you a lot about what possibly happened there and so when they returned from this little sidebar discussion among the attorneys and the judge defense attorney walker called for a mistrial and the primary reason she said that the judge physically lunged at her <laughs> during this sidebar and judge lynn vehemently denied this charge he denied this accusation and he said that no mistrial was going to happen there and <laughs> Walker got kind of upset about that. Uh, she cried and she went to her mother uh, who was seated in the gallery. And then th while she was crying and basically in his, uh, resting her head on her mother or whatever, the two of them walked out of the courtroom together. So she literally ran home to mom basically she ran to her mom crying and she and her mom walked out of the courtroom <laughs> and then the other defense attorneys for smollett continued to argue with the judge that he should issue a mistrial but judge lynn uh, continued to maintain and was pretty irate about the accusation he maintained he did not lunge and there would be no mistrial and he told uh, the jury to uh, consider that some of the things that they said they shouldn't consider that on the on the record or they should take that out of their consideration so after this bizarre incident the defense attorneys that remained <laughs> besides walker there continued to with their cross-examination of the osandiro brother and also smollett decided to take the witness stand and testify himself now it is not in any way required for the defendant to take the stand the defendant can choose to do that often uh, the defense attorney will advise the defendant not to do that because the defendant can incriminate himself or herself but smollett wanted to do this anyway now a recent trial if you uh, paid attention to the kyle rittenhouse trial he took the, the stand and it seemed to be to his advantage 
But Smollett probably had another reason for doing this because this was another performance. He's an actor and he wanted to get some stuff off of his chest that he knew none of the attorneys would say with their uh, legalese. (laughs) And I'm sure Smollett wanted to dazzle the jury with his commitment to the idea that he would maintain his innocence. You know, he wasn't going to let just the attorneys argue the case. He was going to maintain his innocence in his own words with a confident smile on the witness stand. But all in all, it seemed only to make his case worse. But to Smollett, it would be an opportunity to perform. He flippantly talked about taking drugs and doing lewd acts with one of the Osandiro brothers. He also tried to score a point when the prosecutor was reading to him and asking questions about uh, some of the private messages and Instagram messages and text messages that he had sent to the Osandiro brothers and, you know, from one African-American to another, they will often frequently make use of what's called the N-word. <laughs> and as a tur- the prosecutor, Attorney Webb, was reading these, Smollett told him that he should spell it out or abbreviate it so as not to offend every African-American in the room, <laughs> if I recall that correctly. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting that you have a word like that that becomes pretty much the worst cuss word anyone could utter in public unless it's one African-American directed toward another African-American, then it's just casual slang. But, um, yeah, so it seemed that Smollett wanted to score points by making a statement like that. So, all in all, ultimately, the jury ended up deliberating uh, December 8th and most of the day then, and then some of the morning, December 9th, when they ultimately reached a verdict that found Smollett guilty of five of the six felony charges of disorderly conduct and filing a false police report. Now, I was reading some verses, Psalms 62, verses 9 through 10. I was reading those verses, and it seems to speak to this here. When you have this culture that wants to weaponize victimhood for political gain, for career gain, based on who you are, and not facts, and God is a God of truth. God says, let us reason together. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But people like Smollett, who lived their entire lives basically in luxury, in a career of celebrityhood, wanted to take advantage of the political landscape of victimhood. But unfortunately for Mr. Mr. Smollett, uh, a sub-sandwich, a signed check, and many other blunders, you know, facts, didn't do him any good when he tried to exploit the culture for his own political gain and his own financial gain with his career. And now as I park home, let's see, once I park here, I will read verses that I just mentioned because I happen to have them on my phone, so let me park, and I will get them up. 
Psalm 62, verses 9 through 10. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. And I leave you with those verses because they aptly describe the Smollett saga. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.